please take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah has been preparing people for a possible battle, right? Sword in one hand, trial in the other. Do your work um, with one eye to what's going on at the wall and one eye what's going on with possibly the enemies coming against them. And we get to chapter 5, and it's a, it's a little bit different. If you've read this uh, recently, there's not a mention of the wall at all in chapter 5. It's sort of unique and weird. It's kind of like this um, out-of-place part of the flow of the book. It doesn't seem to really hold up to it. And, you know, we've been so focused on the unfolding drama with the wall and the enemies and that sort of a thing. This chapter actually gives us a little bit of, I think, behind the scenes into maybe more of the everyday life of the people living in Jerusalem at the time. And really some of the tensions that can begin to come up when people dwell together and work together. Now, I, I'm not sure if the situation, I read some commentators that said, well, this, this may have come later on after the walls were built, all of that stuff. Um, and Nehemiah just inserts it here for that part of a narrative to help us kind of behind the scenes. It could have just happened right in the moment. And he just takes an aside from the work to explain what was going on in this situation. Either way, Nehemiah is addressing what really becomes some serious problems within the people of God here. On the surface, it might just seem like, well, is that really that big a deal? But as we go, I hope, I hope we'll see it really is. So Nehemiah chapter 5, we're just going to do the first nine verses today. Read along with me. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters were many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Stop there. Let's pray together. Lord, great truths to be learned here. Uh, truths on, on handling finances, on brotherly love, on humility, on loving kindness towards others who are in need. Um, lots of things to take from this. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us exactly what we need to know. Um, our hearts read this and want to immediately say this is back then, this is not a problem today, and yet, Lord, the application very much is. And I pray that as we as we look at your word and study it, that it would come alive to us 
and that your spirit would stir us to action as a result of what we read and as a result of what you reveal to us in this. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So this chapter is Nehemiah's kind of firsthand experience with an economic issue taking place in Jerusalem. And it comes to the surface as Jews are complaining about how other Jews are treating them. So the tension doesn't involve the people from the outside anymore, right? Chapter 4, prepare for possible battle. People from the outside may be coming in to harm us. Chapter 5 is not like that. Chapter 5 reveals that the problem is oftentimes in our own hearts. It's within our own our own group. This is, for the most part, an at-home problem that Nehemiah is addressing. And just because there's no enemy breathing down their neck or making violent threats against them doesn't mean that the issue isn't serious. Verse 2 makes it clear that they're, they're facing some kind of a food crisis, a a uh, big-time um, accessibility problem to necessities, okay? It, it seems like, to me, that the wall project, a lot of the guys were probably working on the wall, and it had taken them away from their access to grain and food, maybe kind of limited their ability to buy those things, uh, possibly because the guys were working on the wall, not in their fields, possibly because their enemies were making a trade very difficult, Sanballat, Tobiah, those other guys, maybe they were on the outskirts of the city inhibiting trade to happen. So there's a variety of reasons why that could be why it's referred to here as a famine. Um, regardless of the why, there was a great outcry from the people. Something had to be done. Nehemiah could not just turn a blind eye and say, suck it up and get back to work. He didn't do this. It looks like verses 2, 3, and 4 identify a few groups of people uh, or types of people who are affected. Look at them with me. Verse 2. I think there's one group here. It seems like this may be kind of the poorest of the poor. They don't really have goods. They don't have maybe property. Uh, they were concerned that their basic needs weren't being met. Let us get grain so that we can eat and not starve. That's There's not much more basic than that, right? And the, their families were hurting. Their children, their, their families were large because a lot of children. And so they were concerned about this. This is one group. Uh, verse 3, I think, hits on another group, folks who maybe had a little bit more. They had, they had fields, they had vineyards, but what were they doing? They had to mortgage them. They, they had to uh, kind of take out a loan, if you will, with that as collateral, and they were... Um, they had some property, maybe, but they were still at the mercy of those who they were mortgaging those things to, those who were better off. They weren't maybe quite in the same desperate situation as the group that's previously mentioned, but they were still taking what we would consider pretty fairly drastic measures to just have food on the table. Verse 4, I think, identifies a third group, ones who weren't really bad off, ones who had maybe some things that they could leverage a little bit. They maybe didn't have to do that to buy corn and grain, but they still had to borrow money in order to do what? To pay what? Taxes, right? They were paying it all the way back then, brothers and sisters. 
They had to borrow money to pay their taxes. Not a good situation to be in. The king didn't really care that they were building the wall, at least in the sense that taxes were not stopped. Still had those to pay. The people in Jerusalem had food problems. They had money issues for a variety of reasons. And if you think about it, none of those really, none of those reasons were really self-inflicted, were they? This wasn't their fault, if you will, here. You know, work on the walls took them away from spending time in the fields, spending time in their other professions, making money. A food shortage or a famine made it way more expensive than normal. This was not just simple inflation here like we may be dealing with. This was a a crisis in the people. And then the government taxes, they just didn't stop because they were working on the wall. It was great. That was fine. But they just didn't stop. And so none of these things are really the fault of the people. Just like there may be times in our lives when we face difficulty and it's not our fault either. I think of the blind man and with Jesus and people around say, well, was it him or his father or his parents who sinned that made him like this? And Jesus said, it wasn't that at all. It was just so the glory of God might be seen here. There may be times in our lives when it's not a, a direct result of maybe even disobedience in our own life. And yet we experience difficult times. It seems to be like that here. And yet, just like it was in Jerusalem, and it just can be this way in our lives too, sometimes there may be a fault, not in bringing these things about, but there may be a fault in how we address these issues. And I think that's what we find here in chapter 5. Out of desperation, and I would say likely fear, some of the people mortgaged their lands and their vineyards, and some of them went even more drastic and sold their sons and daughters into what's called here as slavery. We might call them indentured servants, but they would be, they would be sent off to live with another family in order to pay off their debts. That's, that's a pretty drastic thing to do. And this sounds to us really strange and even irresponsible on behalf of the parents. But I, I want us to understand that the law that they were under, given by God, not only allowed them to lend to the poor on a pledge, so if people were in need, they could say, okay, I'll hold on to your 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 mortgage certificate or your, your title, land title, and then we'll work at it to get this paid back. He said, you could do that, but the law also permitted Israelites, if they were poor, to sell themselves, even their sons and daughters, to earn money. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 25. But there were, there were constraints to that. And this is where the problem comes in. It, it required, the law required, that those who were sold in this way aren't kept as slaves forever. In fact, they're not even treated as what we would consider slaves. But they would be set free at the end of six years or at the year of Jubilee, even if full payment hadn't been made. And in fact, if you read some of the verses that I have listed, I think they're in your notes, Leviticus 25, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15. The law even says you're not to look at your brother or sister who's in need and do the math and say, okay, the year of Jubilee is coming in two years. I know I'm going to have to set them free, so I'm going to charge them a different price. It says, no, don't do that. Don't treat your brothers and sisters that way. That's not godly. And this is what was going on in Jerusalem here. Now, look, the book of Nehemiah is not primarily a book about money. And yet, 
It shows how money problems can impact us, even today. We did do a finance study years ago called the Treasure Principle. And one of the major components of the Treasure Principle, one of the ones that it illustrated, was this truth that we can't separate how we use our money and how we walk with the Lord. Do you see that? These things are intimately connected to one another. Now, the enemy would like to convince us that they're not. But they are. So, practically, buying a house is not simply a financial decision. There is a spiritual component to that purchase as well. Choosing a career path, how you invest your money, even how you think about money are actually spiritual decisions because they directly affect your relationship with God. And if we don't handle what God has given us with the right heart and make decisions with what God has given us with an eternal perspective, we can make costly mistakes that affect us for years to come, including those around us. And we see this happening in Nehemiah chapter 5. Some who had means, who were maybe, we would say, a little better off, were taking advantage of those who were in dire straits, who were having a tough go of it, who were poor. And verse 5, the beginning of verse 5, is the heartfelt appeal of the people who had fallen on hard times. And they say this. This is a reminder to the nobles and all those who are maybe taking advantage of the poor. They say, our flesh is as the flesh of our brother's. Our children are as their children. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, aren't we part of the same family? Are we not part of one another? Aren't we the same flesh and blood? Aren't we God's people? This might as well be your kid who's being sold to pay our debts. And what was happening wasn't right. And Nehemiah realizes that pretty quick. You can look at verse 6. Uh, there's no beating around the bush. He says, I was angry. I was angry when I heard their outcry and these words. When he heard what was going on, it ticked Nehemiah off. He was mad. And then he says, verse 7, he says, I, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. The people's complaint stirred compassion in Nehemiah's heart. But also, it stirred anger towards the rich in Jerusalem who were taking advantage of them. Nehemiah thought carefully. That's what it means that he took counsel with himself. It means that he thought really carefully about what needed to be done, about what needed to happen in order to make things right. Um, Pastor David Gusick says something I think is helpful. It's in your notes here. It says, Nehemiah was a, a man of passionate... I'm sorry, Nehemiah was a man passionate enough to get angry at injustice, but wise enough to not act until he had considered the matter carefully. See, sometimes righteous anger is the right response. But we don't think through what it might mean first. And we get ourselves in even more trouble. Nehemiah, thankfully, didn't do this. First things first, he addressed the problem. He addressed those who were taking advantage of the needy. And he brought charges against them, he says. Specifically, they were, they were actually breaking the law by charging their brothers and sisters' interest. And this is what he says. What you are doing is not good. 
Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, tells us they were breaking the law. Because the law there says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them, and you shall not exact interest from them. Pretty clear, right? Obviously, this was not being practiced right here in Jerusalem. Nehemiah knew it, and he doesn't just cower away from this confrontation, from this problem. It could have been easy. Nobody likes talking about money, right? Nobody likes dealing with a sin issue, with injustice, unfairness. Nehemiah could have said, well, let me just talk with the nobles, you know, one-on-one. I'll try to work it out. We'll figure out something. He doesn't do that. Before everybody, he says he gathered a whole assembly together, and he's essentially pointing fingers. We don't see this happen a whole lot in our culture anymore. Everything is politically correct. We don't see if there's a problem. We don't often just say, this is wrong. But Nehemiah does. Very clearly, in his charge against them, he says, I made charges against them. That's the most official way he could point the finger. And he uses this term in verse 7 that the King James Version says usury. That's a better word than just interest. Because interest uh, isn't, doesn't have a negative connotation in and of itself, but the word usury does. And if you Google the word usury, it means more than just simple interest on a debt. Usury is um, interest that is way higher than it should be or interest that shouldn't even be charged at all. In fact, I think there are actually places where it's illegal to do this to people. Israel was doing it to themselves, to one another, to those who were their brothers and sisters, who were of the same flesh. Verse 8, Nehemiah likely reminds these offending folks of when the people had been conquered and taken away and sold as slaves to foreign people. He says, as many as we could, we've, we've bought them back. We've reunited our brothers and sisters. And yet here you go trying to sell them into slavery all over again, just to a different group. He's pointing it out. I mean, he uses sold, sell, sold. He uses that word over and over. And I think it's to drive home a point here to his countrymen. Shouldn't it be obvious then that the Jews, you know, many who'd once been redeemed already, that they shouldn't then be sold into slavery simply because they couldn't pay off high-interest loans? Well, it should have been, but it wasn't. And so Nehemiah confronts them. And I think this is interesting, and we'll talk about this more next week. But when they were confronted, those who were guilty were silent. And Nehemiah says they could not find a word to say. They could not find a word to say. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah speaks clearly to them. He says, the thing that you are doing is not good. No pulling punches, no beating around the bush, no politically correct anything here. He's like, you guys are messing up. But he doesn't just point out the problem. That, that's needed. But he offers a solution. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? 
to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. So the simple correction is just what you're doing is wrong. Has anybody ever said that to you? Please don't raise your hand. Has anybody ever said that to you? You're messing up. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was just a friend. But maybe they've said something like that to you. Hey, I love you, but what you're doing is grieving the Spirit of God. How can you justify your actions here when taking the whole counsel of God's Word into account? Has anybody ever said that kind of thing to you? Probably, I would guess that somebody said those things to us. The, there's not a person here that likes it though, is there? Nobody is asking like, hey, come at me with all of your uh, pointing out of my problems. Nobody's asking for that. Nobody likes for those things to be pointed out. And yet, there's also not a person here that hasn't needed someone to say this sort of thing to them. At, at certain times, God's people, and I, I want to look at it from this perspective this morning. God's people were actually extremely blessed to have somebody like Nehemiah pointing this out to them. It doesn't feel that way in the moment. I get it. But you and I are extremely blessed to have people in our lives who are willing to say hard things like this to us. Because we need it. Don't resist, don't deflect, don't ignore, don't excuse, don't do any of those things. What's the solution? Nehemiah says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? That's it. These, these folks had forgotten, I think, who was really in charge. And money can do that to people, makes them rely on themselves and makes them think that they're more important than they are more powerful than they really are. I think the people here, some of them, had gotten a taste of this, and Nehemiah is saying, you're not in charge here. You have forgotten who is really in control. And I think this can be like us too, sometimes. Sometimes we get in a bad pattern of sinful things, and we forget who's really in charge. For, Israel, for the Israelites here, some of them, it was charging interest and usury against their own brothers and sisters. They'd fallen into this pattern. It wasn't good, and Nehemiah is speaking out against it. And maybe that's not what we have fallen into. Maybe it's a different kind of money problem for us. Maybe we've fallen into a pattern of pornography, and we think we have control over it. Maybe it's an anger problem. We think we've got it under control, and then in the littlest problem, we blow up. It could be a drinking problem. It could be a gossip problem. It could be a worry problem. You could fill in the blank here. We generally wrestle with these kinds of things, but we think we have them under control, like we are their master, without realizing or caring in the moment often that what we're doing is hurting not only ourselves, but also those who are close to us. We're not in the driver's seat anymore in these moments. We can quickly and easily become ruled by the ungodly thing that we think we can control. And Nehemiah is just saying, you guys aren't 
the bosses here. Paul makes this clear in the New Testament when he's talking to to servants and masters. And he says, everyone is under someone else. Even you as masters, you employer, the president of the United States, the the king and queen of whatever place you want to put in, they are still under God. They are still under authority. And Nehemiah is just saying, you're under authority and you're messing up. And when we think we have this, this ungodly thing under control, that's the moment that we are blessed to have brothers and sisters who say, I don't think you do have that under control. I think it's a bigger deal than you realize. And they, they call out our sin. And in doing so, they call us back to the Lord. Essentially, Nehemiah is reminding the people of the words of the law in Leviticus chapter 25, specifically verse 43, concerning God's people, God said, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall shall fear your God. do Do we see a pattern here? So there's unfairness happening. And what's the solution? Fear the Lord. Walk in fear. See, I think we don't properly fear God when we think too highly of ourselves. Right? And that doesn't mean that we're in a position of authority over people, but maybe it's like that sin in our life that we think we have control of. I've, I'm mastered that. I can do this now and then not do it now. The reality is, no. You've been mastered by it. And sin does that in our lives. Solution again, he says, fear your God. Walk in the fear of our Lord. Another danger here is not just that it negatively impacts the people of God. But notice in verse 9, the end of verse 9. It also impacts people around them, the nations around them. What does he say? Walk in the fear of our Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Shouldn't you do that? Shouldn't you walk in fear? Shouldn't you behave rightly so that other people see godly behavior for what it should be? And don't mock the people of God and who God is? Now, this wouldn't be the last time, unfortunately, that Jews would hear an admonishment on this. Romans chapter 2, 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Is, is this what God deserves? Certainly not. So why do we do this? This is Nehemiah's confronting the people with this. Disobedience to God and his word always have a far, uh, a more far-reaching impact than we realize. It always does. And you see this played out in, in the sin of people throughout Scripture, starting all the way back with Cain and Abel. Cain's sin and disobedience, he was warned about it, right? Sin is crouching at your door. And yet, in disobedience to the Lord, that affected, that affected Cain for the rest of his life and affected those close to him. And it does the same for us. Paul's conclusion in Romans 2 
is that heritage, you know, your bloodline, even physical act of circumcision does not make a person right with God. Does not make a person one of God's children or a Jew. But what determines a true child of God is what the spirit does in a person's heart. What he describes as inward circumcision. That's what it is. It's, it's not the outward stuff. It's not saying you're a Jew. It's not saying you love God. What has the spirit done in your heart and what is he doing through you? Disobedience to God and his word always impact us and it moves out from us to those close to us. And like Nehemiah, there are some things in our lives that we ought to be angry at and angry about, right? Specifically, sin. We tell our kids this. That's the only thing you're allowed to hate. The only thing you're allowed to hate is sin and specifically the sin in your own heart and life. Jesus says this basically when he's talking to those who are asking about forgiveness. And he says, you know, remove the the log from your own eye before you try to get the splinter out of your brother's eye. It's important. Nehemiah was angry about the sin that was going on, that was hurting people. I think if we could really wrap our head around who God is, we would be quick to obey what he says instead of gravitating towards sin. This is not some revelation here. You guys, I think, would get this too. We understand this. If if we really could see God for who he is, we'd obey rather than disobey. I think if we really saw God for who he is, we would think twice about practicing sin instead of thinking that we can control that sin. The incredible thing is, I think we, we can see God this way because he's revealed himself fully in the person and work of his beloved son, Jesus. In his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his constant intercession as every believer's great high priest, we actually see the heart of the Father. We see who God is in Jesus. Therefore, if that is true, and it is true for believers, I'll just reiterate what Nehemiah asks. Ought then we not to walk in the fear of our Lord, of our God? If we can see, and if we do see God in Jesus and his word, shouldn't that change the way that we live? That's what he means by walk in. He means live. Live in the fear of the Lord. Every sin has consequences, and one of them always involves the glory of God. That's why he says to not be a ridicule to the nations around them. Shouldn't we walk in the Lord? Next week we'll start in verse 10, but I just want to point forward to that verse and to what Nehemiah says here. He says, you're not supposed to walk in fear. I want to point that out. You're not to walk in fear, you're to walk in the fear of the Lord. Those are different things, guys. You're not to walk in fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You're to walk in the fear of the Lord, in reverence to his holiness. And what does Nehemiah say in verse 10? He says, let us abandon this interest, this use of interest. Could I put it another way? He says, let us abandon this sin against our brothers and sisters. 
So now it comes to a completion here. He says, what's the solution to, to, to patterns of sin, to not loving each other properly? Walk in the fear of our Lord and abandon the sin. That's what he calls them to. Let's, let's abandon this. If, if it's the sin of taking advantage of or mistreating somebody, he says, abandon it. You guys know what abandon means, right? Leave it behind. Just leave it and go a different way. If it's the sin of misusing what God has given you, abandon that sin. If it's thinking that you can stay in control of a pattern of sin when you really can't, you really need to abandon that idea. Walk in fear of the Lord in reverence to his holiness and abandon your sin. That's what Nehemiah is saying. That's our call today even. As you walk in the fear of the Lord, Scripture then actually says that you will never be moved. And I love this. And I think there's a great connection here. So I, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 15. We'll end by reading this together. Psalm chapter 15. As you walk in the fear of the Lord, Scripture says that you will never be moved. Sounds like most of you are there. Psalm 15. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, he says, who shall sojourn in, our, in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth to his, in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who, he who does these things shall never be moved. Are you ready to abandon your sin? Are you ready to walk in the fear of the Lord? In obedience. Again, I'm not encouraging you to walk in fear, but in the reverence and holiness of the Lord in obedience. If that's not something that you've said, yes, I want to do, but today, maybe it is. I'd encourage you, today can be the day that you walk in the fear of the Lord. It can be the day that you meet the Lord. And as we sing our final song together, I'll be standing up front. If you want to talk more about those things, Maybe you've identified in your own life, there's things that I need to change, that I need to abandon. Come up and we'll pray together. If you realize I have no relationship with the Lord, I have not been impacted or care about my sin until today, but I need to know more about this, come up and we'll pray and talk. I'll encourage the worship team to come up and let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that... uh, when we obey your word and we seek to, to dwell rightly in your presence in obedience and walk blamelessly and speak truth in our heart and to love one another and not slander or mistreat our neighbor, that when we commit to doing these things and practice them by your grace, Lord, that we will never be moved. This doesn't mean that we won't have problems 
Lord, but it means that we will never be moved from your hand, from your watch care. And so I pray, Lord, that if there are Christians in, in the room this morning that need to abandon a sin and walk in obedience, Lord, I pray that by your grace they'd be able to do that today, to give it up, to seek accountability from a brother or sister who then can, can say these words to them, hey, you know, what you're doing isn't good. I pray that you would move in hearts to do that. And as well, Lord, if any are listening and they have not ever taken steps of obedience to trust Christ as their Savior, to stop abandon, to stop hoping in their own power, but to abandon that, Lord, I pray that they would do that today and instead put Christ on the throne in their heart and life. And we do this, Lord, because it's, it's for our good we know, but Lord, we also do this for the sake of your namesake, for your glory, that those who see us might see the truth of how you desire for your people to live. And Lord, when we've messed that up, I pray that we would be quick to repent and turn back to you. Have your way in us today, in your name, amen.